The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. I want to invite you up to 1 Samuel. We're jumping back into our study of 1 Samuel this morning. I want to ask you this question. What do you, what do you think it means to be obedient? I've titled this morning's message, Obedience is Better. And so what, what does it mean to be obedient? And I suppose how we answer that question might differ in some context. And so, for example, if you're driving, uh, or if the posted speed limit, let's say, is 55 miles per hour, and you're driving at 58 miles per hour in that zone, um, I, can, I think I can say with fair amount of confidence that at least in the eyes of law enforcement, you're being reasonably obedient to the speed limit. Uh, I don't know of anybody who's ever gotten a ticket where the, where the single violation on their, uh, for their ticket was three miles per hour over the speed limit. That, that usually doesn't happen. Somebody who's talked to me afterwards probably say, it happened to me, uh, but that usually doesn't happen. Um, I teach some classes um, online at a nearby university, and in my class, students are required to turn in their papers by midnight on Monday night. So tomorrow night, midnight is their deadline to turn in papers. And technically, anything past midnight, even, even one minute past midnight, uh, technically is considered late. But since some of my students live literally all over the globe, I never take late points. Um, if, as long as their work is submitted, say, by Tuesday morning, I'm good with that. That's, that In my book, that's obedient enough for me, although I know not all college professors or even high school teachers allow that much grace. Um, and as, as a parent, you might uh, set a midnight curfew for, for your teenager. I, I need you home by midnight. And in your, home, in your home, rather, you might enforce that either strictly or leniently in your home. So obedience, we might say, is in the eye of the beholder in some respects. But what does it mean to be obedient to the Lord? If the Lord God were to ask you to do something, how can we know that we've been obedient? Or how can we know that we've been obedient enough? Does does God grade on a scale, if you will, on a curve for obedience? Is it okay to be mostly obedient to the Lord? Or does God want more from us? I hope this morning's text will help answer that question for us. If you're in 1 Samuel 15, say amen. All right, I'm going to read all of chapter 15, so just follow along with me as I read this chapter, and then we'll get into the text. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in oppressing, opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilliam, 200,000 men on foot 
and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord at night, all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to, said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amal Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe 
and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As the sword... As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Samuel went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, we know that Your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, and we pray now that this text, this text that is some 3,000 years old, Lord, as we read this, that we would understand it not as a word from men, but as a word from God. And that as we read it, Lord, that we would understand it in its context as it was given But since Your Word is living and active, we would also understand it as a Word to us. And so as we hear Your Word, help us to apply it in our lives. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who are note-takers, my central idea is rather simple this morning, is God delights in our obedience. God delights in our obedience. And I don't have multiple uh, sermon points this morning, so I'm not going to be dividing the passage up into multiple uh, sections. Rather, we're just going to walk through the text, and as we walk through, I'm going to explain the text to you and, and, and give application as application points arise. And my prayer is that we'll all encounter God as we read His text this morning. So let's look first at those first three verses. The, these, are the, the, these verses set the context for everything else that's going to fall in the passage, and so they're critically important. There are two major players in this chapter today. Both of them have made numerous appearances in 1 Samuel thus far. And in fact, the book we're reading is named after one of them. So one of those major players is Samuel. The other is Saul. Samuel, of course, is the child of Elkanah and Hannah. We read about them a long time ago back in chapters 1 and 2. Hannah was barren, desperately wanted to have a baby. And so God opened up her womb and she was able to give birth to Samuel. And after Samuel was weaned, uh, she gave him to serve the Lord. And so he was raised by Eli. Samuel, of course, is he's the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. Um, but after Samuel becomes a man and the people of Israel, they, grow, they begin to grow restless. They, they demand they want a king so they can be like all of the other nations that are surrounding them. Uh, Samuel says, you know, you don't, you don't want to have a king. You don't want to go down that road. Uh, but they insist on having a king. And so God tells Samuel, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're actually rejecting me as their king. So go ahead and let them have a king. And Samuel anoints Saul uh, to be Israel's first king. And so now we find ourselves in chapter 15. Saul has already been the king for a while. 
So in verse 1, when it says Samuel has gone to anoint him, he's not anointing him, if you will, to be king the very first time. It's more in the sense that Samuel is giving Saul another chance to show himself as a good king before the people. And this is important because in chapter 13, just a couple of chapters ago, and I know we've divided this, we've spent a few months since we've been in, in 1 Samuel, but in chapter 13, Saul had failed miserably to be the king that he was supposed to be. In chapter 13, he had failed to obey the word of the Lord. And so now in chapter 15, Saul is getting a second chance. He's getting a second chance. He's getting a chance to vindicate himself to be the king that God wants him to be. And this is what the Lord God tells Saul to do. He tells Saul to go to the Amalekites and to strike them down. He's to devote every one of them to destruction. He's to kill, quote, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's verse 3. Now to our Western ears, this may sound a bit appalling even. In fact, some people reject the God of the Bible precisely because of passages like this. And perhaps some of you even, when you read a passage like this, it sets you uneasy and maybe you're a bit on the fence about passages like this. You might hear this passage and think, you know, I, I couldn't worship a God who would do that. <clears throat> but hear me out. There's more to this passage than meets the eye. To be sure, I want us all to realize that God isn't just willy-nilly trying to destroy and wipe out an entire people group. It's not like God got up on the wrong side of bed that morning and decided to wipe out the Amalekites. It's not what's happening at all. Again, there's more to the story. And in order for us to see that more to the story, I want us to turn to the book of Exodus for just a moment. The book of Exodus, it's the second book in your Bible, so you need to turn back just a few pages. We're going to be looking at Exodus 17. If you have one of those red Bibles, you'll find it on page 70 is where you'll find Exodus chapter 17. But as you're turning there, before I read the passage, let me give you just a little bit, a little bit of background information to where we're at in Exodus 17. God has he's just freed His people from slavery in Egypt. It was just in chapter 14 of Exodus that the people had crossed through the Red Sea to, to escape the Egyptian army. And now God's people, they're making their way through the wilderness. They're on the way to the land that God has promised to give them. And then in chapter 17, the Amalekites show up. And completely unprovoked, the Amalekites attack God's people as they were simply trying to march their way to the promised land. And the Amalekites attack them. That, that's the background. Now look with me, um, Exodus 17, verses 8-13. through 13. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him. He fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he, he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and the people with the sword. And now please pay attention to these next three verses. They are crucial to understanding what's happening in First Samuel chapter 15. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and they called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter 15, time of Saul. The reason God tells Saul to utterly destroy Amalek is so that God will carry out the promise that he had already made. This isn't an unprovoked attack against the Amalekites. This is God's judgment on the Amalekites for their unprovoked attack against God's people. Now, I want to make two applications from this point in the passage. One, one of these applications is about God and who God is. The other, about us. First, about God. Beloved, know this. Believe this. Understand this. That God always, always, always keeps His promises. He always keeps His Word. God's justice knows no time limit. God's justice is not bound by a statute of limitations. This event in 1 Samuel 15 is happening hundreds of years after what happened in Exodus 17. But God always keeps His Word. And so even though this is a new generation, if you will, of the Malachites, they are not an innocent people. They are a sinful people and God is judging them with impartiality. And here's how that fact should help us understand God. Beloved, human justice is never ultimate. It's never ultimate. Even in the case of capital punishment, human justice is still not ultimate. I've seen people get very bitter because they think that someone who sinned against them or sinned against somebody they loved, that they're getting away scot-free, that they're getting away with, their, with that sin. But that's not true, beloved. It's not true. It's never true that people are getting away scot-free. It is very possible for somebody to elude human justice. That is entirely possible. It happens far too often. But no one will ever escape the justice of God. Because God sees all things and He remembers all things. And so even if we're not privy to seeing the justice of God uh, executed against the guilty, we know that it will be. And that's what's happening here in 1 Samuel 15. Now, a second point of application is how what we might take away from this passage from a human perspective. Is I would want to argue to you that in the same way God told Saul to utterly destroy, to totally destroy the Amalekites, this is the, this is the mindset that we need to have against sin in our own lives. John Owens, a Puritan, once wrote that we need to be killing our sin or our sin will be killing us. And so we need to ruthlessly put our personal sin to death. Beloved, don't toy around with your sin. Don't entertain sin in your life. Mortify your sin. Put your sin to death. And press on. In verse 4, Saul assembles an army to attack the Amalekites. It's a large army. It's over 200,000 people. And we're told in verse 7 that Saul and his army defeat the Amalekites. Right? Victory, if you will. But in verse 8, 
We're told that Saul and the people spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And not only did they spare Agag, in verse 9 we're told that they kept the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fattened calves, etc., the lambs. They kept, the off, kept all of them. And then for emphasis, the author adds, and would not utterly destroy them. Now, of course, that's the whole point, isn't it? Saul was supposed to utterly destroy them, but he didn't. He only destroyed what was despised and worthless, but he kept the good stuff. Now, in the meantime, in verse 11, the Lord regrets that He made Saul king over Israel. Now, that, that word regret, I'm going to come back to it later. It's an interesting word. It comes back in verse 29 and then again in verse 35. Um, and when, when we're told that God is not a man that He would lie or have regret. I'm going to come back to that apparent contradiction a little bit later. But for right now, what's being described here is that the God we serve isn't a stoic God. He's not an emotionless God. He is the God who is impassive and static. Or He's not rather a God who's impassive and static. Rather, He's one who interacts with His creation. And here in this verse, the Scriptures are using a word, this word um, to, to regret. He's using a, a human emotive word to help us understand in human language who God is. So God doesn't regret, if you will, in the same way that you and I would regret something. But He's also actively involved in this world. He's working. And it, it grieves Him at this point that Saul is acting so wickedly. And because of all this, Samuel is angry. He's not angry at God. He's angry at Saul. And so he gets up early in the morning in verse 12. He goes down to meet Saul. And eventually he finds him in a town called Gilgal. Now, I want you to notice the very first words that come out of Saul's mouth when he, when he greets Samuel. This is verse 13. This is super important. Look at this. Saul sees Samuel come and he says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And you might read that and go, what? What do you mean, I have performed the commandment of the Lord? What does that mean? Right? Any objective reader of this text will know that Saul has fallen woefully short of performing the commandment of the Lord. Any objective reader would say, no, you didn't. You didn't even come close. So what's happening here? Here's what's happening. Saul has deceived himself. He's deceived himself. It's that simple. Now make no mistake, at this point in his life, at this point in the text even, Saul genuinely feels that he has done what the Lord has commanded him to do. You can almost see the smile of satisfaction on his face as he sees Samuel coming. Hey, look at what I've done. Blessed be you. I've done what the Lord has told me to do. It's almost like Saul was expecting a, you know, well done, son. Good job. But Saul has deceived himself. Beloved, I want you to understand sin will do that to you. Sin will deceive you. I was watching an interesting video this past week in preparation for another study that I'm leading right now. And I'm convinced, even now, after watching that video, that one of, one, one of the particular speakers in that video has deceived himself. He, he was arguing in that video against the position that the church has held basically for 2,000 years. And that speaker himself, he was convinced that people have been misunderstanding the Bible for hundreds of years, and only now, only now have modern people finally begun to understand really what the Bible is saying. In his opinion, the church had been wrongly understanding the Bible and therefore wrongly condemning a certain type of behavior. But now we, now we understand better. 
at least in his opinion. Beloved, in the same way that Saul was deceiving himself, so too this man was deceiving himself. But hear me well. Lest we be too quick in picking up a stone to cast at Saul or to cast at this man, I want you to know that we too are all too quick to deceive ourselves. We look for ways to justify our own sin. We try to explain away our own sin from the clear commands of Scripture. God told Saul to destroy all of Amalek. He didn't tell him to spare the best from Amalek. But Saul justified his actions in his mind, so much so that he proudly goes to Samuel and says, I performed everything the Lord told me to do. Beloved, where might we be deceiving ourselves? What issue of obedience are we trying to explain away? Let's be careful to weigh our thoughts and actions against the clear teaching of Scripture. I love how Samuel responds to Saul. Saul's all happy. Look what I've done. I have not done so good. And Samuel responds, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, basically, you know, well, if you performed all the commandment of the Lord, then why am I hearing the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? Because if you've really performed the commandment of the Lord, I shouldn't be hearing animal sounds right now. Now, the logic is foolproof, right? It's as, as if Samuel were saying to Saul, you know, what part of everything didn't you understand? You were supposed to kill everything. But Saul shows his true colors, right? Look there in verse 15. He, this is how he responds. He says, they have brought up from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Do you see what's happening in Saul's explanation there? Wherever the commandment wasn't followed, well, it's their fault. It's, It's that group. It's the people. But where the commandment was followed, it was we did it. Saul is passing the blame. And that's his oldest time itself. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know this is where the Bible starts, right? It's what Adam did when he blamed Eve. You know, it's not my fault. It's that woman, God, the one that you gave to me. It's her fault. And then when God turns to Eve, it's not not my fault. It's, It's the serpent. And frankly, we do the same thing all the time. We sin. We fail to do what God has told us to do, and then we pass the blame. Well, it's not my fault. I'm the victim in this. Don't you understand? I'm the victim. I, I was trying to do the right thing. I'm just a product of my circumstances. Beloved, how about you? Are you still blaming your sin on others? What sin do you need to personally take before the throne of God and confess it to God? Notice also what Saul says there in verse 15. He says of that sacrifice, he says, the sacrifice was made to the Lord your God. That's what he says to Samuel. It's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't say it's to the Lord our God or even to to the Lord my God, but we're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. And so we as a reader, we can't help but wonder if Saul even really knows God. 
Now, for sure, he knows about God, right? He knows about God. But does Saul really know God? I can't help but wonder, in our modern culture, how many people know about God? And how many people really know God? Could it be the reason that we're slow to confess our sin? Could it be the reason that we want to pass the blame is that we don't really know God? Perhaps we've only heard about God. We know stories about God. But we don't really know God. When David was confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba, David didn't blame his sin on others. He didn't blame Bathsheba for bathing there in open sight where he could see her. He didn't blame Uriah for you know not sleeping with his wife when he brought him home from war. If you're unfamiliar with that story, you just next book over, 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Now, David didn't blame anybody else. David confessed his sin before God. David took the blame for his own sin. And I, this is one of the reasons I'm convinced that David is called a man after God's own heart. Beloved, when we sin, do we confess our sin in such a way to show others that we too, that we are men and women after God's own heart? I pray we do. I need to pick up the pace here a little bit. We're not quite halfway through the text. We are half, more than halfway through the sermon, uh, but we're not halfway through our text. So verses 17 and following. Uh, Samuel rebukes Saul. He says, he says to him, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you obey the voice? Or why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? In other words, Samuel saying to Saul, you know, "You're the king, man. Don't go blaming the people. You're the king. You're over the people." The Lord gave you clear and unambiguous directions and you didn't do it. It's nobody's fault except your own. Yet despite this strong rebuke, I want you to notice how Saul responds in verse 20. And again, I'm paraphrasing. But Saul says, I did obey the Lord, right? He said, I did do it. I did exactly what He told me to do. But, but it's these people. They're the ones who sinned, not me. That's where Saul still is in his mind. Again, notice the utter deceitfulness of sin. Sin is dug in like a tick in Saul's mind. He just can't let it go. It can't be his fault. He's got to blame somebody else. But again, before we cast the blame so much at Saul, let's pick up a mirror, turn it on ourselves, and ask ourselves what sin has become so deeply rooted in our lives, in our own lives that we will often find blame in others rather than in ourselves. And then we come to the verses that are perhaps the best known in this entire text, in verses 22 and 23. Just read those verses. They're beautiful verses. Saul, Samuel says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. Now, we don't have time this morning to fully unpack those verses, but I want to make two brief comments about those uh, two verses. First, 
I want us to see that God delights more in obedience than in our religious motions. We, we don't make burnt offerings anymore, right? We don't, we, don't, we don't do that. So let's just call those religious motions, where we're going through religious motions. And perhaps you're really good at going through your own religious motions. Maybe you read your Bible every day. Maybe you even you catechize your children. You faithfully give to the church through both your time and your treasure. But your heart is cold toward God. Beloved, I want you to know it's not that those religious motions are unimportant. On the contrary, they are important. God calls us to practice a variety of religious motions. He calls us to read our Bibles and to give our time and of our treasure. He calls us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But our religious motions should flow out of the overflow of our heart as we follow God obediently. So it's obedience that comes first. And then the motions. Obedience is better than religious motions. That's my first comment. Second, Samuel tells Saul that because Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, God has also rejected Saul as the king. Now those are strong words. But I want us to notice something here. It, I've read this passage hundreds of times and I've never noticed it until this week in preparation. The Lord wasn't rejecting Saul as a person. He didn't say, I reject you, Saul. That's not what's happening here. Rather, the text is telling us that the Lord rejected Saul as king. Now, let me explain why that's important. God is telling Saul that if Saul can't be trusted with the word of the Lord, then Saul also can't be trusted to lead God's people. Now, let me repeat that. If Saul can't be trusted to follow the word of the Lord, then Saul can't be trusted to lead God's people. Let me illustrate that. So a little over ten years ago, you called me here to be your pastor. To lead this congregation, to shepherd this congregation. And inasmuch as I am faithfully following the Word of God, then I'm being faithful to that calling. But when a pastor, whether myself or any other pastor, or a leader of God's people, when that leader rejects the Word of God, and in Saul's case, by the way, it was more than one rejection. I told you earlier in verse chapter 13, he rejected the Word of the Lord. Here again in chapter 15, he's rejecting the Word of the Lord. When a leader of God's people rejects the Word of God, that leader, in his capacity as a leader, has been rejected by God. So, if I were to lead or teach this church in a way or in a manner that was clearly contrary to the Word of the Lord, then you would be duty-bound to remove me as the pastor of this church duty-bound to do so. When it comes to leading God's people, a leader's only authority is the Word of God. That's what's happening to Saul. Now, by the way, he is going to stay, and if you know the rest of it, you know he's, he's going to stay king for a number of years to come, but he's already, even at this point, he's been rejected by God as the king. So he serves, if you will, as the rejected king for the remainder of his reign. And it's only at this time where Saul begins to realize the, the gravity of his situation. You know, prior to this, right, he's been, he's been happy to explain away, and it was their fault, it was the people's fault, to explain away his sin, to blame it on others. But now when his power is being threatened, now he begins to change his tune. Now he says in verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I fear the people and obey their voice. 
And then, then, then he begs Samuel to pardon his sin. Now, we might think, well, why doesn't, why doesn't Samuel forgive Saul at this point? There, there are three signs in this verse that show us that, that, that Saul is not genuine in his repentance. First, as I just said, Saul isn't even remotely interested in repentance until his power is threatened. You know, he's repeat over and over. I, you know, it's, it's everybody's fault. It's everybody's fault. It's everybody's fault. And then you've been removed as king. Whoop! Change my mind. I need to repent. Second, he's still in this passage tacitly blaming the people for his sin. And let me add that even if the people were partly to blame, that doesn't exonerate Saul. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So even if he was fearing the crowd, that's not an excuse. Third reason that we see that this, this repentance is not genuine is Saul's not looking to God for forgiveness. He doesn't say, God, will you forgive me? He's looking to Samuel for forgiveness. He asks Samuel, Samuel, will you pardon my sin? Now Samuel sees through this false repentance and he refuses to return with Saul. Samuel turns to leave Saul and Saul grabs hold of the hem of his garment and his garment rips, which gives Samuel an opportunity to give Saul, if you will, a living illustration. Verse 28, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now at this point in the text, we don't know who that neighbor is. We know from reading the rest of the story. We know it's David. But it's a vivid illustration of the importance of following the word of the Lord and of the consequences of failing to do so. And then we get to verse 29. I won't spend a lot of time here, but again, some people find a, a, a contradiction in the text. And I, I disagree vehemently that there's any contradiction here. So let me read that verse again. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now earlier in verse 11, again, by the way, later in verse 35, we're told that the Lord did regret making Saul king. So which one is it? Is it does he regret or does he not regret? Well, as I argued earlier, and I still stand by that, his regret in verse, 30, in verse 11 as well as in verse 35 is to show us that God is not stoic in his relationship with the world. On the contrary, that he's actively engaged in the world. But then how do we explain what's happening in verse 29 where he says he doesn't regret? Well, we need to understand that words oftentimes have meanings, plural, not just a meaning, singular. And we have to allow the context of what we're talking about to help us determine what the meaning of a word is in a passage. And clearly, in verse 29, the context is about a decision which God has made, namely tearing the kingdom away from Saul. And what Samuel is saying in verse 25 is that decision isn't going to be reversed. That decision is going to stand. And in fact, if you look at other English translations, so I read from the ESV, I love the ESV translation, but if you look at other translations, that point is made abundantly clear. The New American Standard, the NIV, the New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, all of them say here, instead of God's not going to regret, say that God is not going to change His mind. The decision has been made. I'm not going to change my mind. It's a firm decision. So no, no matter begging, no matter pleading, it's going to change God's mind. That decision has been made. That ship has sailed. But it doesn't stop Saul from trying. The very next verse, Saul says, again, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. 
and return with me. Verse 30. Again, the repentance isn't genuine. His, what is, what's his only concern there? Honor me before the people. I, I, wanna, I, wanna, I still want to look good. I mean, if you leave me right now, how's that going to look when I go back? He's worried about appearances. Now, for whatever reason, Saul does, Samuel rather does relent. You know, earlier he said he's not going to go back. Samuel does. Samuel's not God, by the way. Samuel's able to, you know, Samuel relents. He goes with Saul. Perhaps, it's speculation here, but perhaps Samuel's relenting because he's concerned for the greater uh, future health of Israel and he, wants, he doesn't want the monarchy, if you will, to, to completely collapse. Um, we don't know why. We're not told. But Samuel does help Saul save face before the people. But Samuel's not through. Saul has left some unfinished business. In verse 32, Samuel calls Agag, the king of the Amalekites, forward. And we're told, I love this, that Agag comes forward. He cheerfully, he comes forward. Just like me, just skipping forward. You can see it. He's thinking the worst, worst is behind him. But Samuel says to Agag, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And then we're told that Samuel, quote, hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That's graphic language, isn't it? This is what Saul should have been doing from the beginning. God isn't interested in our religious motions, nor is He interested in partial obedience. God demands complete obedience from us. Now for sure, we will fail. You and I will fail. In fact, there's a good chance that many of us, if not most of us, will probably fail God before we go to sleep tonight. Okay? We fail. But with that in mind, what what keeps us from being rejected? What's to keep us, if if we're going to fail like that, what's to keep us from being hacked into pieces? Well, the answer is this, beloved. His name is Jesus. Because Jesus has already borne the penalty that we owe. All of our failures have been nailed to the cross. He's taken the punishment that we deserve. He was the one delivered as a sheep to be slaughtered so that we who trust in Jesus might not have to bear the punishment. And so I'll just leave you with one last question as I close. Is have you trusted in Jesus? If you haven't, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to speak with you about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your love and Your grace and Your kindness to us. Lord, help us as Your people to walk in obedience. Lord, I know that obedience is often a fragile thing. And it's something we can't possibly hope to do on our own. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that You help us through the power of Your Spirit to live in such a way where we're obedient to You. When we fail You, Father, Help us to respond in Christ-like repentance. Not wanting to blame our sin on others, but recognizing our sin before You. And Father, for those who might be here today who have never trusted in Christ, those who stand even now guilty before You, if they were to die today, would enter a Christless eternity. I pray, Father, that You would help them to recognize the good gift that You have given us in Your Son. 
And they don't, they don't have to fear your judgment because your judgment has already been carried out on your Son in their place. So, Father, for anybody today that needs to trust in Christ, that they would do so today. Lord, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as a benediction, listen to this from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Whoever does not love Me does not keep My words. And the word that you hear is not Mine, but the Father's who sent Me. God bless you and have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.